the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 62 CP, Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. But understand this, Peter's point is this, if highly exalted angels couldn't get away with defying God's authority, then don't think that mere men who defy God's authority by teaching error are going to get away with it either. That's, that's really his point. And you don't really want to miss that. There's a story that a friend of actor W.C. Fields went to visit him in the hospital just before his death. The friend found Fields thumbing through a Bible. When asked what he was doing with a Bible, the actor replied, I'm looking for loopholes. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher on these Bible classes of the air, and we're studying a chapter that has some pretty stern words, 2 Peter chapter 2. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. As the name Verse by Verse implies, Pastor Steve teaches the Bible a verse at a time, and these messages in 2 Peter 2 cover the dangers of false teachers. In the first two broadcasts of this series, Pastor Steve shared three characteristics of false teachers. First, they are subtle. They act like they're teaching biblical truth, but in fact, they are teaching lies intended to keep the unsaved from salvation and to keep saved people from spiritual growth and victory. Second, they are immoral. That is one of the ways we can recognize false teachers. Just look at how they live. And third, they're greedy. They pressure people to give to them rather than teaching a biblical perspective on stewardship. There is yet another characteristic of false teachers. They're headed for big trouble. And today we'll begin to learn more about the punishment God is storing up for false teachers. One of the fallacies often promoted by false teachers is that there is no hell or that a loving God would not condemn anyone to an eternity there. Like W.C. Fields, they want a loophole. But there is only one way to escape from the abyss. It is the cross of Christ. If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Peter 2, verse 4, and let's get started. Let's turn our Bibles to 2 Peter 2. We want to uh, study 2 Peter, but I'd like to read verses 4 through 10. So just follow as we read 2 Peter 2, beginning at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, 
For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. We'll stop there. What we have just read in our English Bibles, and I realize that there are a number of translations that are out in the congregation, but what you have just read, regardless of what English translation you have, is actually one long sentence in the original Greek text. And while this sentence contains many individual truths, I want you to know that Peter has two major points to make. That's really important that you grasp that. All these other individual truths focus on these two major points. Point number one that he's making is that God will absolutely, certainly punish those who oppose him. That's his first major point. You see that at the end of verse 9 where he says that he will keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. God punishes those who oppose him. The second major truth that Peter teaches here is that God not only punishes those who oppose him, but he protects and delivers those who love him. And that's found at the beginning of verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Now, this morning, we really want to look at the first of these points by Peter, and it is that God judges those who defy him. I recognize that this is not a popular message today because in a world of extreme toleration for any behavior, the mention of judgment and punishment, especially eternal punishment, just sounds out of step with the times. And you know what? It is out of step with the times, but it's not out of step with the biblical record. In fact, the the concept of judgment and hell are so seldom mentioned today, even by those who claim to believe the Bible, that one church historian stated that, and I quote, hell disappeared and no one noticed. That's really insightful. The thought of, of hell, apart from being used in crude language, has really disappeared from our culture and nobody really noticed. It's gone. It isn't thought of by people today. In fact, when it is thought of, it's thought of as archaic and out of date. Then in light of the the disappearance of eternal judgment from the thoughts of, of most people, we want to know how can Peter be so certain that future punishment awaits those who defy the Lord? Because there is a certainty here. There is a, a certainty of, of a voice that he gives, a ring of authority. Well, Peter appeals to the only reliable authority on the subject of judgment, and that is the word of God, not culture, but the word of God. And to prove his point, Peter cites three known, well-known uh, examples from the Old Testament in which God did judge those who defied him. He speaks, first of all, of fallen angels, those who sinned against God. Then he speaks of the ancient world of Noah's day and how God judged that world with the flood. And then thirdly, speaks of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and how God dealt with them in judgment. Now, why was Peter so concerned to prove that God judges those who defy him? Why now? Why does he just break into this? What is, where does this fit in the book? Well, you want to keep in mind that the big picture of Second Peter was that he wrote this letter to a group of Christians who were being influenced by false teachers. False teachers had 
infiltrated uh, their churches. And these teachers threatened the spiritual life of these relatively new believers by instructing them in heresies concerning Jesus Christ, as well as other heresies. In fact, he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you. So he said, just as there were false prophets uh, in the ranks of Israel, understand that there will be false teachers in the churches. And uh, we know from the rest of this epistle that Peter is not only predicting that they will come, but he's also saying they've already started to infiltrate. The apostasy has already begun. And then he says these false teachers will secretly introduce destructive heresies. And the word secretly means they're coming alongside of competent Bible teachers. They will pretend to be uh, solid Bible teachers. They will deceive people. And they will deceive them with destructive heresies. Heresies that if believed will damn a person for all eternity to hell. Even, Peter says, even to the point that they will deny the very master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So the way Peter addresses this is to take three chapters, and in each chapter he deals with a specific problem relating to these false teachers. Chapter number one, he tells these new believers that the only way to protect yourselves against false teaching is to grow in the Lord. And so that's chapter one. That's why he tells them to to grow, to add to their faith all kinds of virtues. They are to grow because when when you're weak in the faith, and you're an immature believer, you are fair game for false teachers. You will be uh, sucked into their system. You are naive. You are gullible. You will not be solid and strong when, when error comes upon you. So that's chapter one. Then jumping over to chapter three, he deals with the second coming of Christ because apparently this was uh, one of the doctrines that they denied. And more than denied, they mocked it. They mocked it because they thought they can keep away judgment by denying the coming of Christ. But in the middle of chapters 1 and 3, he talks about uh, false teachers specifically. He exposes them. He tells the congregation what they're like. And, and really, this is a very harsh chapter, a very hard chapter. Peter has nothing complimentary to say about these individuals, which would indicate to us uh, how strongly God feels about truth and error. And I think we need to keep that in mind, that it isn't a a minute thing to deny his word and to distort his word. The only way we know about the Lord is through the truth of the word of God. And to distort it is is the worst of all sins in in the sense of, of a church setting. Now, as we saw several weeks ago, Peter opens chapter two by informing us of how dangerous these teachers really are. They're a danger to you. They're a threat to you. They're a threat to me. He says in verse 1 that they're subtle, they're hard to detect, so they're not easy to find. They're not easy to to discern and figure out who's right and who's wrong. Secondly, they enjoy popularity. He says in verse 2, many will follow their sensuality. Uh, they're going to be popular because they give a message that people want to hear. They, In the words of Paul, they tickle people's ears. And not only that, but they're wealthy because it says in verse 3, they're greedy and uh, they will therefore financially exploit people. That's what he says, for, uh, for in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. So from a human perspective, just think about this. These false teachers have it made. They're looking good. They have deceived lots of people and they have money and they have popularity. 
They think they've got it made. They're popular and they're wealthy and they feel like they've pulled the wool over people's eyes. Listen, they know what they're doing, by the way. These are not confused people. These are people who know that they're they're out purposely to deceive. And uh, it looks like they get away with it. But notice the end of verse 3. Peter says, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. After describing them as deceptive and popular and and very greedy, Peter states that the ultimate destiny of these false teachers is judgment. He says that long ago, God set in motion a principle that he would always judge people like this. And the proof of this is that in Old Testament times, God did deal in judgment with those who opposed him. And Peter presents three incidents of God's judgment to illustrate his point. That's where we're going in this text. He'll also, by the way, use Lot as an example of how God rescues the righteous. But uh, we want to look at the rebellious angels and when they sinned against God and how God dealt with them. In future weeks, we'll look at the rebellious society, and then we'll look at the rebellious cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I realize, though judgment is denied by many today as a relic of an ancient superstition, I want you to know that the, the thrust of this passage is this. You and I can be absolutely certain that God will judge false teachers, and not only false teachers, but all who oppose Jesus Christ. Why? Because biblical history demonstrates that God judges the wicked. God judges the wicked. So this morning, as I said, we want to look at the first of these judgments mentioned by Peter, the judgments of rebellious angels, because I'll tell you how this fits in. I'll tell you how this fits in. When you understand how God must judge sin, what a glorious salvation we have, because Jesus has provided a way for us to escape judgment. So how can we be certain that God will judge false teachers? Number one, because he judged rebellious angels. We begin by looking at the beginning of verse four. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned. Now let's stop here. He says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned. Peter opens this section on judgment by referring to a time in history when some angels, those exalted creatures, spirit creatures created by God to to serve him and to praise him, when some angels rose up and sinned against the Lord. Peter says, God judge them. God dealt with them in judgment. And I want you to, to carefully note how Peter words his statement about the judgment of angels, because it's worded in, in such a way that I don't want you to miss the point here. He, he doesn't just say, well, when they sin, God judged them. Notice how he, how he words it. For if God, and notice this, did not spare angels when they sinned. In other words, since God didn't even exempt those exalted creatures from judgment, then don't think for a moment that he's going to spare mere mortals who teach false doctrine. I think that's his point. God didn't spare even these glorious creatures. So certainly he's not going to spare mere humans when they rise up against him. You see, it may very well have been the case, and at this point we're speculating, but it's probably a valid speculation. It may very well have been the case that these false teachers that Peter was dealing with were men of prominence in the community. Important individuals, exalted individuals, and if that's the case, then Peter wants everyone to understand that their position in man's eyes won't save them from judgment. 
They won't save them from judgment any more than the glory of angels saved them from judgment when they sinned against the Lord. God punishes all sin. He is not, not a respecter of individuals. And I think that's his point. Now, and that's why I think he's using this to say it doesn't matter your place in society. If God dealt with these exalted creatures that he created, then don't think you're going to get away with it. Now, when exactly did angels sin against God and experience his judgment? Well, uh, as you read this text and you go on, you have to say, in all fairness, Peter doesn't give any information in this text about a specific time or event when angels sinned against God. But he assumes that his readers would know what he's talking about because he doesn't clarify it. So it must be an event that is mentioned in the Old Testament. There are basically two interpretations of which angelic rebellion Peter is referring to. The first view is one that in the days, and this is uh, those who hold this would say this is found in Genesis chapter 6, that in the days before the flood, there were some fallen angels who had sexual relations with women. And therefore, they corrupted the human race in an attempt, in an attempt to prevent Messiah's birth from taking place. And as a result, God brought the flood upon all of mankind, but preserved Noah and his family. Now, that's a, that's that's really a very popular interpretation. We dealt with this in detail when we studied Genesis 6. It is not the interpretation that I hold to. However, I do have to say, in all fairness, that this view has some very strong points, and uh, it does have some real merit. I don't want to get into that now, because I think that we can run down a bunny trail and miss Peter's point. So I just want you to know that is one interpretation. The other view is that Peter is referring to a time before God created Adam and Eve when one of the highest of all angels, Satan himself, initially rebelled against God. And I'd like you to to see this in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. Now, whether or not this is exactly what Peter had in mind, Isaiah 14, as well as Ezekiel 28, do seem to be presenting the fall of Lucifer. Notice how, how Isaiah words this in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now, these verses do appear to be presenting the fall of Lucifer when due to his pride, He rebelled against God's authority. A similar passage is found. You don't need to turn there to Ezekiel, though. Ezekiel chapter 28, in which he uh, Ezekiel addresses uh, the king of Tyre. But from the wording of it, it, it seems apparent that he's talking about the God of the king of Tyre the one who stands behind the king of Tyre. So when you put both of these together, it uh, would seem that uh, this is talking about Satan's rebellion against God's authority. Then in Revelation 12.4, and you don't need to turn there again, just write this down, but in Revelation 12.4 suggests that when Satan fell, when he originally rebelled against God, there were one-third of all the angels who joined him in this rebellion. Now, how many angels God created? I don't know. But a third of them followed Lucifer. 
and they have become known as fallen angels as well as demons. I take it that those terms are synonymous. Now, regardless of which view you hold, and at this point, it's really irrelevant, you don't want to miss Peter's point. And that's why I'm not going into the various views and the and the points in favor of them and, and uh, the weak points of them. But understand this, Peter's point is this, if highly exalted angels couldn't get away with defying God's authority, then don't think that mere men who defy God's authority by teaching error are going to get away with it either. That's that's really his point. And you don't really want to miss that. Now, how did God specifically judge these rebellious fallen angels? That's what you want to see. Notice the text again in verse, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. It sounds like Peter's thought doesn't end there, and it's right. That's right, because I told you it's really one long sentence, and his thought doesn't end until until really the middle of verse 10. Peter says, though, that in response to this rebellion, God cast these angels into hell. Now, this is very interesting because the word he uses Uh, for hell, maybe translated hell in in your Bibles, but that is not really the best translation. It is a Greek word used here only in the New Testament, the word Tartarus, the word Tartarus, not used any other place. Now, anyone who knows a little bit about Greek mythology has heard of that word Tartarus. This word was originally used in Greek mythology to refer to a place reserved for the most wicked of human beings, gods, and demons. That's how it was originally used. It was a compartment in hell where the worst offenders were kept. It is not a word that speaks of hell in its entirety, but a compartment in hell. Eventually, Jewish people and writers began to use this term. So it's not limited to Greek mythology. I I don't want you to think that Peter is giving us Greek mythology. Peter is borrowing this word. He's using this word because it did become a word that Jewish people, as well as Greek people, embraced. And uh, they began to use Tartarus to refer to the place where fallen angels were sent. As one writer put it, he said, it's to find for them the lowest hell, the deepest pit, and the most terrible place of torture and eternal suffering. And that's how Peter is using this word. Wow, no wonder Pastor Steve began this series by telling us that 2 Peter 2 is not fun to read. There is a flood of false doctrine these days saying that God is too merciful to punish people the way Peter and Jesus and Jude and John and many others described. But if that's true, you'd be forced to conclude that God is not a moral being. If he does not punish evil, he's like a crooked judge who lets off serious offenders with just a slap on the wrist. The same Bible that tells us of God's love and mercy also tells us of his righteousness and his wrath toward those who reject the payment for sin that Jesus mercifully offered in his death on the cross. This is Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher. He is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, where he has been serving in that role since 1981. Pastor Steve would enjoy meeting you if you're ever in the Clearwater area on a Sunday morning and looking for a place to worship. You'll find Lakeside at 1893 Sunset Point Road. Lakeside is online also at lakesidechapel.com. 
The website has a wealth of information, including a map, phone number, and the various ministries of Lakeside, including this radio program. At Verse by Verse, we have our own website, too, versebyverseradio.org. We have lots and lots of previous broadcasts available for free streaming or download. There's also information about how you can give if the Lord is leading you to do so in order to help us keep these programs coming your way. And there is contact information if you have any questions or comments. Once again, that's versebyverseradio.org. As we're seeing, Peter was a bit of a hellfire and damnation preacher. But guess what? So was Jesus. For example, the Lord said in Matthew 10:28, And do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In fact, Jesus talked about judgment in hell quite often in Matthew's gospel, especially in chapter 23, where he took special aim at the false teachers of his day, the scribes and Pharisees. Recently, I was at a gun range with a friend using his pistol, which I had never shot before. My friend didn't notice, but one of the range attendants saw that the way I gripped the pistol might get my thumb pinched. He came over and pointed it out. Now, my initial knee-jerk reaction was some resentment at his interruption, but after a second, I realized that he had really done me a favor. Passages like what we are studying here in 2 Peter chapter 2 are not pleasant reading, but God is really doing us a great favor in pointing out spiritual danger. We saw today that God did not and will not spare the angels who rebelled. In our next lesson, we'll go on in 2 Peter 2 and have a little history lesson. Peter will remind us of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as the flood in Noah's day, and caution us that if God knew then how to punish the wicked and save the righteous, then he will also know how to do that on Judgment Day. That's a scary thought for those who defy Jesus, but for those of us who have placed our trust in him, it should be very encouraging. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.